0: This is from a poem by Pablo Neruda. When did smoke learn how to fly? When do roots talk with each other? How do stars get their water? Why is the scorpion venomous and the elephant benign? What are the tortoise's thought thoughts? To which point do the shadows withdraw? What is the song of the rain's repetitions? Where do birds go to die, and why are leaves green? What we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much. Our normal consciousness as we go about a day is very much a state of being asleep for most of us not realizing what it is that we don't know, not realizing what it is that in fact we do know, and not having the energy, the inspiration to be asking these questions, to be inquiring, to be looking carefully at the things of our lives. The failure to see things as they actually are is the state of a normal day for us because we're not paying attention. The word in Pali is moha, it means delusion. A very literal translation of it would mean to be stupefied. We walk around as though stupefied, not paying attention. We experience it as confusion and bewilderment and helplessness and dullness ignoring the essential questions of our lives. Because we walk around on the surface of things, not seeing deeply, we don't feel very secure. There's a feeling of uncertainty or worry. And this is not very tolerable for us. So generally speaking, what we do is, we hold on tightly to anything that appears that seems as though it will give us some security, some stability, and some safety. So the state of delusion is said ultimately to lead to false views, and a rigid mind leads to states of dogmatism and fanaticism and conceit, as we hold on tightly to these things which seem to promise security. It's almost as though, if you can imagine yourself outside in a tremendous storm, incredible howling winds and pouring rain, we look for shelter, we look for refuge, we look for safety. And we hold on pretty tight when we feel we've found it. We refuse to relinquish it. The state of ignorance or the state of delusion is likened to what we experience if we walk into a dark room. We don't know what's in there. We don't know if at any moment we'll stumble, we'll fall, we'll face an obstacle. There also may be some very glorious treasure in there that we can't meet, we can't connect to because we don't see. The state of mind that this tends to bring up in us is one of fear. We just don't know what's in there. Whereas if we turn on the light we can see clearly. Even if there are obstacles, there are things to climb over, there are things to circumvent, to avoid, we can see them. And so there's that inner certainty, that confidence, that faith that we have from the light being on. That faith of being able to see clearly in meditation brings us to what is called a self-witness truth. We have a very personal and intimate sense of what is true because we've seen it for ourselves. It's not borrowed knowledge. Somebody else says that they have had a great revelation or realization and it sounds pretty good to us. And so we say, yeah, that must be true. It's very different than that. It comes from our own inner being, our own seeing. That state of delusion is that darkness in the room. It has the characteristic of not knowing what's really going on. And so the true nature of what's happening in the moment is concealed. It's almost as though... I don't know if you've ever had the experience of driving down a road somewhere and all of a sudden not knowing where you are. Sometimes you don't even know what state you're in. If you're a person who travels a lot, it's like, wait a minute, where am I? That complete not knowing and that fear, that panic that comes from that, it's a state of delusion. Delusion is the root of all unskillful things that we do, all things that cause pain and suffering for ourselves or for others. All unskillful states of mind are rooted in delusion, in not seeing clearly. Obsessive desire, obsessive attachment, obsessive fear, anger, all of them are rooted in this state of delusion, of not knowing. They're grounded in delusion and they provoke more delusion as the mind gets into a belief that some particular experience out there somewhere is going to make us very much completely happy and we pursue it intensively. We find that in fact it does not and we think Well, maybe the next one. And so we go on, we go round and round in these states. Not seeing a situation clearly brings disharmony. Not understanding the truth of things brings pain. This is from Wordsworth who said, with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. This is really what we want, to be able to see into the life of things, to come alive, to awaken, to come out of the stupor, to be connected, to be in touch with our lives from moment to moment. To make the eye quiet means to develop a state of dispassion or detachment. Sometimes that word seems very cold and harsh, like we're going to withdraw from our experience. We're going to pull back rather than open to it. But it doesn't really mean that at all. I sometimes think of dispassion as being a state of great honor, great integrity. Because it means that we move into a situation without those hidden agendas without that effort to manipulate, without those preconceptions of what we're going to find, to see things as they are. There's, I believe, a Sufi saying which says, the secret waits for the insight of eyes unclouded by longing. There are secrets to be discovered everywhere. There are things to open to, to marvel at, to be connected to. But our eye needs to be unclouded by longing because full of longing, we will move into a situation and see things that we want to see, not necessarily things as they truly are. To develop dispassion means the full meeting of the moment how it actually is and so it's a relief it's actually a release to be able to surrender to be with things as they are to abandon that needing to predefine and predetermine what we're going to find both in our inner world and in our outer world this opens up our whole universe that willingness to see The power of harmony comes about through recognizing the connectedness of all of our life. That means having our actions in alignment with our deepest values. This is the power of morality or virtue. The Pali word is sila and at root its meaning is the attainment of coolness. If our lives are not really straight, as we all know, what happens is a lot of guilt and remorse and regret and fear at different times. These are rather fevered states. There's a lot of burning, there's a lot of heat. It's very difficult at those times to see clearly, to have enough strength of mind and resiliency and and joy to be able to see clearly. This is Sila. it's the power of harmony to live in a way that fully embodies the things we most care about. And the deep power of joy which is the wellspring of our energy for investigation so that it's not dry and abstract and removed But is rooted in this inspiration, this deep power of joy. This is born out of love for oneself, really caring for oneself and one's happiness. It's born out of compassion for oneself and for other beings. It's born out of the joy of wakefulness. We could say that the most powerful Buddhist values are wakefulness and kindness, both of which are states of great joy. This is the energy that renews us, that keeps us going as we investigate, as we wake up, as we look. To develop this, to make the eye quiet and the heart full of joy, to bring our lives into alignment, to attain this coolness, we need to step out of our ordinary consciousness. We need to step out of the conventional and be able to look carefully and honestly at absolutely everything, to look completely. Our ordinary quality of attention is not very deep. It's what's called in the Buddhist psychology, unwise attention. It's a perception which attributes to what's happening in the moment, the object of the present moment, certain qualities that it actually does not possess. The object only appears to possess them because the mind is projecting them, it's attributing them. For example, Under the influence of desire, the object appears very pleasant. It appears very alluring, whether it's a person, it's a thought, it's an idea, it's a sound, it's a sight. We want so much for it to bring us happiness that what we see is that promise. I and mean, who amongst us has not been infatuated at one point, wildly infatuated with a person or with an idea, only to look back two months later or three months later and say, What was that? You know, that was really strange. Because in that infatuated state, we don't see clearly. This tremendous relativity in desire because we project all of our hopes and all of our wishes on some object. Infatuated people may not be very nice people because they don't like to hear anything that will have them see another way. As Sarah Upandita, my teacher, said in one of his, I think, best one-liners, he said, lust cracks the brain. And we know that. It's not just sexual lust. It's that wanting. It cracks the brain. What happened to the ability to think? To think carefully. We get tunnel vision when the mind is filled with that force of attachment. And with that force of attachment, with very strong desire, we only want to see the pleasant aspects of things. The world is seen for that little time as being magically providing and we get attached. We don't want to accept the possibility of change and we don't want to accept the possibility of pain being the other side of that pleasure. I can remember, I don't even know how many dozens or hundreds of sittings that I had, not in the beginning of my practice, which was only painful. but. Some time later, as things began to get a little nicer, and I would have a sitting where my body felt very light, I'd feel all these floating, wonderful sensations, and my mind state would be really serene, and I'd have these lovely thoughts, and I would sit there and I'd think, oh, isn't it going to be magnificent, spending the entire rest of my life in this state? And I believed it. I would think, "Oh, and you know, in five years or in ten years, I'll go back home to New York." and I had this vision of myself wearing my white sari, kind of floating down the streets of New York, and, you know with this beatific smile on my face, and exactly that mind state, because I just did not want to accept that it might change. And what would happen? Ten minutes later, 20 minutes later, half an hour later my knees hurt, and my back hurt, and I was bored, and I was tired, and I was restless. And every time that happened, I thought, I must have done something wrong. know, what did I do to lose that oh-so-beautiful state that I thought was mine forever? But I didn't do anything wrong. Things changed, because things do change. It was only that grasping, that desire in my mind that led me to believe that I was going to be able to preserve that for the rest of my life. There's pleasure and there's pain in our lives in a sitting, in a walking, in a day, in a lifetime. This is the constant spectrum of events that we all face and still we can have very deep joy. It's the force of desire and we experience the same thing with aversion, with anger you wake up in the morning and you're feeling very angry, almost everything you see that day looks repulsive. It looks awful. know, if you wake up and you're really, really angry, do you appreciate the sunlight and the flowers and the trees and the smiles the people's faces? No. It all looks terrible because that's what we're seeing. And under the influence of delusion, things appear permanent, they appear substantial, as though we can control them, as though we can make them be a certain way, when in fact we can't. The process of meditation is about purification. It's about cleansing our perception so that when we see in the moment it is not distorted By those forces of desire, of aversion, of delusion. We can come very close to what is actually happening, find the truth of it. And from the joy of finding that truth, we can question, we can look carefully, we can go on. This is the process that we're engaged in. These distortions of perception happen so quickly, it's so swift and so subtle that we often don't see how our own minds are remodeling reality. They're remodeling cognition according to our needs and according to our fears and according to our habits and our views. We take our distorted perception of things to be a faithful replica of things as they really are until we wake up, until we practice mindfulness. And then there's that discovery of, oh, this is what's arising in the moment and this is how I'm shading it, this is what I'm doing with it. We see that when we're strongly afraid every shadow holds a lurking menace. If we can cleanse the mind of fear, we can see it for what it is. When we are deluded, the mind is very cloudy. And so it's easy to misinterpret what's going on in many significant ways. Because of this delusion, this inability to connect clearly with what's happening, we tend to feel quite restless, very unsettled in our bodies and in our minds and in our lives, because we don't understand them from within. We don't feel connected. We don't feel at one with them. It's not integrated. We experience things in a very puzzling array of pieces and don't know quite how they all fit together to form oneness, to form wholeness. The ways that our attention is biased have very profound effects upon us. Psychologist William James said, My experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items I notice shape my mind. So we step out of our ordinary consciousness and we pay attention. We learn to pay attention in a way that's not distorted by all of these factors, that's fresh and new and really alive. This is mindfulness. When we practice mindfulness, we also develop a vision of the context of what is happening in the moment. We call it clear comprehension or in Pali Sampojanya. For example, one of the Buddha's recommendations for our happiness in life is to learn to speak in a careful way. To say that which is true and also that which is useful. To understand what's useful, we have to pay careful attention to the context. Just because something is true, that doesn't mean that we blurt it out in every situation, in every circumstance. We become sensitive. We take care. We open to many facets of a situation. This is clear comprehension, to see completely what is going on to see it distinctly, to know many aspects of it, and to know it for oneself. For example, one could make the statement that morphine is a very dangerous drug. But is that necessarily true for a person who is dying in intolerable pain? What's the context? What is the truth of that moment? Not just a narrow vision, But what do we really see when we look at it completely? We look at it in all of its parts. One could make the statement that a group of people who get together and don't speak to one another and don't look at one another and kind of move around really slowly and you know, are very strange. They have some deep psychiatric problems, (laughs) you know. But is that always true? And we know that's not always true. Look at it completely, look at the whole picture. Clear perception is not free of context, but we might mistakenly cling to a view that something is absolutely true or absolutely false all of the time because we're not looking, we're not paying attention. If we lose the context, we lose the sense of relatedness, the sense of connectedness. If we don't pay attention, if we live out this delusion It's very easy to get trapped by categories from the past, to get trapped by habits. We have, as you know, a center in Massachusetts. It's called the Insight Meditation Society. We opened it in 1976. And that first day when we went to look at it, we were walking around the buildings we came to a particular wing of the building, which had sort of dilapidated linoleum and the wallpaper was, was not very nice. And as we walked around, Joseph, who was born in the Catskills, grew up in the Catskills, which is a mountain range in New York State with a lot of resorts and hotels and things like that, Joseph said, boy, this wing looks like a rundown hotel in the Catskills. I said, hmm. Six weeks later, after we had made the decision to buy the place and we'd moved in, somebody was walking around trying to make a map of all the different rooms and wings, and I saw on this map Catskills. And I said, boy, that's funny. You know, And he said it just as a joke, and it didn't mean anything. Fifteen years later, it's still known as the Catskills. And one day, I was talking to a friend who had been there just in recent years, and he said to me that when he was, when he first came and he'd been given the tour, he asked, well, why is it called the Catskill Wing? And it was explained to him that That was the wing of the building that was in closest proximity to the Catskill Mountains. And I said to him, what in the world difference does it make that that particular wing of the building is in some proximity, which it probably even wasn't, to the Catskill Mountains? And he said, I don't know. I mean, it was just said to me with such seriousness. You know, and this is what we do. It's like we have habits that are blind, that are unknowing. And then we begin to weave these legends around them to support them till we don't even know what's true anymore. We live in this world of myth, of legend, of pretense. And we're trapped. We're trapped by these habits. The categories that we make gain momentum and they're very difficult to overthrow. We have the sense of our planet. We call it Earth. Then we have Europe. And within Europe, we have, for now, East Germany and West Germany. That doesn't mean that there's a line on the earth between East Germany and West Germany. It's a category. If we hold to it rigidly, it becomes a trap. This is from Richard Nixon, who said... (laughs) No power on earth is stronger than the United States of America today and none will be stronger than the United States of America in the future. Do we know that? We don't know that. It's not like history has stopped here. It's not even that evolution has stopped here. But we tend to rigidify things and categorize things because it gives us a sense of security as though really it will not change. But it changes constantly, continuously. If you just think about this last year in the world, we began a retreat in September and our our yogis, our retreatants, were silent for three months without contact with the outside world. They didn't read newspapers. They weren't supposed to get mail. They left this retreat in December And it was a completely different world than when they went in. It was completely different. This changing, evolving world is not the place to look for security in that grasping way. If we cling to a category, if we cling to a point of view unable to see the context, unable to see what the present moment is actually offering, then we miss the relative nature of the universe. And it's all very relative. It's not fixed and it's not absolute. Somebody can do something in this room and that action could be viewed by some as being rigid and by others as being consistent. It could be viewed by some as being soft and others as being weak. It could say something and some people could think it was frank, very frank. And other people could think it was very rude and abrasive. There's tremendous relativity in this world. Everything in life really is like a Rorschach test. We bring our interpretations, our beliefs, our hopes, our fears, everything. And it's all different. I can remember when I was in India and I was sick, I needed to see a doctor and somebody brought me to this doctor's office outside of which was hanging this plaque and the plaque said, so-and-so, M.D. failed (laughs) and I thought, I'm not going to a doctor who failed as M.D. But from a certain perspective, from a culture where literacy is not that common, where the chance to get even that far advanced in one's education is very rare, having failed the MD was the barest of items. You know, to get that far was a sign of very significant progress. I mean, for me, you know, I thought. But there it was, it was like two completely different realities when we can let go of the rigidity of our point of view and make that effort just to see what is actually happening in the moment. There is richness, there's laughter, there's letting go. And there's great freedom. That's the point in which we can start to see clearly. Stepping away from those fears, those desires, that color our perception so strongly. It's tremendous relativity in this world. Just this past summer Joseph and I went to the Soviet Union for the second time to teach and that in itself was very interesting because I'm of the generation, as many of you are, that grew up in school having these Alarms go off periodically, which were test drills for when the Russians were going to attack us. And what we had to do when the alarm went off was get down under our desk and put our head down and put our hands over our head to be saved from the atom bomb. (laughs) And I can remember going to the Soviet Union and still inside me there was this, this feeling of like, okay, this is the enemy. You know, these are the people, all my life, I've been taught, these are the enemy. And I kept looking around when I was there and thinking, where's the enemy? (laughs) That there is no enemy. That there were people who saw things from a certain perspective based on their own conditioning. It's the quality of our attention that will determine the level of delusion or insight that we experience. And this is very important. Our lives are very rich and there's great relativity that means aliveness, it means change, it means seeing things anew when we pay attention. On our way to the Soviet Union we stayed in a hotel in England in the middle of the night about 3:30 in the morning the fire alarm went off i kind of dragged myself out of bed i just sprained my ankle we were each staying up on the 6th floor and first i really i didn't want to go downstairs because i knew i couldn't take the elevator that i'd have to hobble down all of those stairs and and i thought well i really better do it so i just i grabbed my passport and i went outside and there was joseph who had his passport and his dharma talk notes (laughs) (laughs) and then we went downstairs and the whole lobby was filled with people these are hundreds of people and it was so amazing to see that some people had everything they owned with them they had taken the time to pack up everything and they just had suitcases and trunks and some people were literally half-dressed and there were women there wearing white gloves and pearls you know and it was this amazing scene it was, it was sort of like a deranged tea party you know, just like everybody out there and just to see what everybody held most precious you know what, what people were ready to leave behind and you know how we prepared ourselves to go down there it was amazing and this is really what life is like all of the time You know, it's like this every single moment when we pay attention. This is what we actually see. Delusion, this kind of blocking off, not paying attention, not being awake, functions as a kind of narcotic so that vital parts of our lives are missing. We can't see things as they really are. We're trapped in the past. We're trapped in these categories. We're trapped in our desires or our fears. Parts of our lives are missing. We feel that loss. We feel very incomplete. There there are strong social manifestations of delusion as well. We see things like buried secrets in families, the arguments that are never mentioned openly, or the fears that are never acknowledged openly. They're cut off. They're hidden. And there's a great web of delusion that's woven around it. If the fact, if the truth is too totally obvious to ignore, then its meaning is altered. It's distorted to make it more comfortable. And so the delusion becomes sheltered by silence, by alibis and by denial. The collusion of this not looking at certain things very carefully, is maintained by directing attention away from the fact or by repackaging the meaning in some way that's more acceptable. And so we have all of these euphemisms. People are talked about as being social drinkers or talked about as being stern disciplinarians. You know? But what's really going on? And how can people have any help when there's that much delusion, when there's that much denial, and there's that much silence? We experience self-deception, where we cut off various parts of our experience. We don't pay attention, and we have these shared illusions as well. A group may implicitly demand of its members that they sacrifice the truth to maintain the illusion, to maintain the deception. Delusion comes from the need to preserve an identity, either a personal identity or a group identity. Whatever threatens that identity arouses anxiety. To avoid the anxiety, we close off, we push away various parts of our awareness. In Pali, the word that is usually translated as anxiety is darata. It means split, to be split off. To be split from our own experience yields anxiety, to be separate. But the irony is that we try to avoid the anxiety by separating even further, by splitting even more, and it just compounds it as we close off more and more we pay attention to less and less, our world becomes more narrowly defined in terms of what we're willing to open to what we can focus on, then our inner life begins to die, becomes very vacuous without a sense of what we are feeling from within, without being able to trust our own perception we become very dependent upon the world's changes. In the Vasudhi which is a great commentarial work in the Buddhist tradition, I talk about when the mind is filled with delusion. I talk about people who are predominantly that way, calling them deluded types. It says that these people don't notice whether they like or dislike something that they have to wait to hear somebody else make a comment about it and once they hear that somebody else likes it or doesn't like it then they can say, oh yeah, that's the way I feel too. They may hold very rigidly to that point of view once it comes up, but it doesn't come up from within. Whether or not this is our complete experience of the world, this is how it is at times when delusion is very strong. We can't seem to touch that place from within which can see clearly, which can know for ourselves. And that's very dehumanizing to be cut off from our inner life. We need to learn to trust ourselves, to have an internal coherency, to be in touch with all aspects of our inner world and to be able to see the outer world clearly and anew in each moment. When we're very comfortable and happy, when we're having those good times in life, when things are pleasant, we tend to feel very powerful at those times. But because of the force of delusion, we try to pretend that those times will stay forever, that they're not going to change, that there is no pain. So it's a very incomplete view. And when things are difficult, when we do feel pain, when we feel conflict, when we feel suffering, because of delusion, because of not seeing clearly, we don't tend to appreciate the power in those times. We feel helpless, as though we should be able to control things, that we should not have these things happen to us. We should only have good sittings. Well, good luck you know it's not like that and because we define it as something we should be able to control when in fact we can't we do feel powerless but really there is tremendous power in times of difficulty in times of of pain or conflict because those are the times that cut through all of the games and cut through all of the conventions and all the pretense There's tremendous power in those times because they take us very deep. It's almost as though we were sitting in a theater watching some kind of performance. And the power of that pain opens us so much that it's like it takes us backstage. And we can see things from a completely different perspective, without the illusion, without the lights, without the costumes. So those times are not to be cut off, really, to fully understand life. They have great power. This is really what meditation does. It takes us behind the scenes of the performance. So we can look at it all. We can look at the pain. We can look at the pleasure. We can look at it with wisdom, with clear seeing, appreciating the power in both without distorting it, without making it into something that it's not. When we go behind the scenes. What we see is that everything is changing. That constantly and continuously things are arising and they're passing away. Always. That this is our lives. The Buddha talked about our experiencing the world in six ways and we experience the world through seeing, and hearing, and tasting, touching, smelling, and through the mind, through thinking, ideas, emotions, that these are the ways in which we experience the world, moment after moment. One moment of hearing, it comes and it goes a moment of perceiving a sensation in the body, it comes and it goes. A thought, an idea, it arises and it passes away. That this is really the nature of our lives. Some of these moments are very pleasant. Some of these moments are very painful and some of them are neutral. They don't strike us as particularly pleasant or unpleasant. They come and they go, all of the time. Our lives are forces of nature coming together, changing, coming apart. If we can see clearly, we can move gracefully through this, not clinging to those times we feel are pleasant, not condemning and rejecting those times we feel are painful. And being awake, being truly alive, even when the experience is neutral, when it's not hitting us over the head by being pleasant or unpleasant, we can be that sensitive that we can connect completely to those times as well. We experience sensations in the body and feelings, and perceptions, and sounds, and tastes, and sights. They come and they go, like a flowing river that's really our lives, with no permanence, no isolated core that does not change. To see this is to live with wisdom, to see things as they truly are, to see with insight, with discrimination not biased not prejudiced to see with dispassion to be awake to be willing to face whatever is actually there to be tender to be open to be vulnerable and to be strong because we're not burdened by the weight of the grasping of the aversion of the fear This is mindfulness. When we are paying attention, we can penetrate to the true nature of things, not to stop on the surface appearance, not to accept that which is conventionally true just because it's familiar, but to see things clearly for ourselves. It's like the mind lights up, it's illuminated like holding a lamp and even if some of the things that we see are not things that we particularly wanted to see, we see them clearly and so there is safety, there is confidence and there is clarity. When we light this lamp by paying attention, when we illuminate the field of our awareness, then there is no more bewilderment, there is no more confusion It's like having a guide in wandering through the forest. We can experience it all with confidence. There's great peace in this and there's great security in this clear seeing. And there's joy, there's delight. The proximate cause or the closest cause or condition for the arising of insight is paying wise attention. It's paying attention to what is actually happening in the moment without adding the past and habits and categories and likes and dislikes. It's paying attention as though we're seeing things for the very first time. To be able to be with our experience without an agenda, to see it as it is, to approach it calmly and openly, no matter what it is. This is the letting go of all of those forces that distort our lives, that distort our perception. This is the letting go of grasping and aversion and delusion. Buddha said, One who has abandoned greed and anger and delusion Such a one has crossed the ocean of samsara with its waves and whirlpools, monsters and demons, has traversed it and gone to the other shore. The meditation is our vehicle. That's why we practice to be able to live truly and fully, to traverse this very treacherous water. To have a way of coming into the moment so that we can appreciate change. We can be continually alive. We can see things clearly. We can come to have that sort of internal security, that deep knowing for ourselves of the truth. And to be able to find peace in all of this. Let's sit together for a few moments. about Thomas Edison that I like in terms of not being bound to categories said that after he tried 9,999 times to perfect the light bulb and hadn't succeeded, somebody asked him, are you going to have 10,000 failures? He replied, I didn't fail, I just discovered another way not to invent the electric light bulb. Continue your practice just one moment at a time, bringing your attention back to rest in the moment, seeing things for what they are. Thank you.
1: The word Dhamma in Pali or Dharma in Sanskrit means reality or means the truth, means the way things are, means the elements of our experience, the elements of the mind, the elements of the body. It also means the path which leads to freedom and which leads to peace. So a question for us Is actually what does this word freedom mean not as a nice idea and not as some idealistic abstraction and not as a kind of spiritual catchword but in a very pragmatic and real sense what is freedom what does freedom mean to us and in our lives Very specifically, it means freedom from the compulsive tendencies or the compulsive conditioning of desire and greed in the mind. It means freedom from the forces of anger and aversion and ill will. It means freedom from the cloud of confusion, of dullness, of uncertainty. These are the qualities in the mind, qualities of greed and aversion and delusion, which actually cause suffering. They cause suffering in our lives, they cause suffering for other people. So when we talk of freedom in this sense, (coughs) we connect with something the Buddha spoke very often of, in terms of what he taught. He said he teaches suffering and the end of suffering, how suffering is created for ourselves and others and how to come to an end of it. When we look at the nature of these forces in our mind, we see that this is not a trivial undertaking. These are deeply rooted patterns and habits What gives the Dhamma practice, gives the practice that we do, the power of transformation, this power of purification, is that it is not an isolated activity, something apart from the rest of our lives. It's not that Dhamma practice means coming to a retreat and learning how to sit and walk for 14 hours a day. There's something more basic and more fundamental, more complete in undertaking this path to freedom. And that is the integration of our understanding, of our meditative wisdom, in every aspect of our lives. It means making our life our practice. The first level of training in this regard is the purification of action or the purification of conduct. The necessity in a genuine spiritual path or journey to take a look at the quality of our actions. Actions in the world, actions with other people. When we bring some wise attention, (coughs) when we bring a careful consideration of our actions, we begin to learn some things. We begin to learn that actions in the present moment actually affect the quality of our minds. And This is something not particularly to believe as a theory, but for us to look and investigate, check out for ourselves. What does it feel like when we're involved in wrong speech? What is the quality of our mind, the quality of our life at that time? What is the quality of our mind when we're being generous, when we're being loving? How do we feel when we're acting out of anger or we're acting out of fear or we're acting out of hatred? We can see very clearly and very intimately, very directly for ourselves how the quality of action influences and conditions our mind states. We also learn something else. And it's something that, although obvious in one way, we easily forget, and that is that Every action that we perform is actually strengthening a particular mind state. It's strengthening a particular quality of our being. And so it's not that we perform actions, and even if the action in the moment is unskillful and there's an unskillful mind state, that it's finished when the action is done. Every moment is strengthening either in a wholesome way or in an unwholesome way, certain qualities of mind. And so, we need to look to see what direction we're moving in. Do we want to go in that direction? This gives an impetus for us to really take care, to look to see What our actions are, what effect they're having, what is being strengthened. The third thing we learn as we bring some wise consideration to our actions, to our conduct, is how these actions are affecting other people. We see that we're not living in isolation. Everything is in this interconnected relationship. How does what we do influence and affect the people around us, the environment around us. Through this care with our action, or attention to action, we learn for ourselves one of the most fundamental principles of a spiritual undertaking it really becomes revealed to us very very directly which is that actions we do have consequences that everything we do bears fruit this is a tremendously important principle to learn not just intellectually or conceptually which is not so difficult but actually to bring to bear in our lives to realize that what we're doing in any moment is going to bear some fruit. The Buddha talked about this in the very first step of the Eightfold Path in right understanding in terms of the law of karma that actions have consequences. When we see that, when we have integrated that wisdom or that understanding in our lives, it's tremendously empowering because then we can choose. We can choose our path, we can choose our direction, we can choose our destiny. From this basic understanding, this basic principle, comes the commitment to following the basic precept of sila, (coughs) the five precepts which all have to do with non-harming, non-harming ourselves, non-harming of others. The place that sila arises, the place that this non-harming arises from within us, is the place of love, and it's the place of compassion. It's because of these feelings that we take care. And this care with our actions is also the manifestation of love and compassion. We could sit in meditation and practice the loving-kindness for a week. And if we go out and then do actions which are harmful or hurtful, where is the value of that metta? Where is the value of that loving-kindness? It has to be manifest. It has to be the empowering force in our lives so that we live in that way. And this is the level of training, purity of conduct, purity of action, that is the absolute foundation for undertaking this journey. <clears throat> Sometimes in the West, I think there's an inclination or a tendency to want to jump into the depths of spiritual mysticism, and have all kinds of deep and profound and cosmic experiences without necessarily having laid this foundation. And the foundation is essential. It's essential because the forces that we are developing and arousing in us are very powerful. And without a firm foundation, a firm understanding of morality, of non-harming, the necessity to act and be motivated from love and compassion, we can get into trouble with these with these very strong energies. They must be grounded. They must be rooted. And so there's tremendous emphasis on seeing this as the basic level, the basic foundation of our undertaking. When we're established in this, and we become established in morality from the time of undertaking the precepts, doesn't matter so much what things we may have done in the past, we've all done many things, wholesome and unwholesome, But from the time of our commitment to a basic non-harming we become established in sila. And it makes possible the next level of training, which is called purity of mind. This purity of mind has to do with the development and strengthening of concentration. Because without concentration, we cannot access the depths of meditative wisdom. We need that power that comes from a concentrated mind in order to open deeply, to see and experience different levels of reality. For most people, this highly developed concentration does not come easily. Most of us find, when we sit down, that our minds are scattered and they wander. When I first began my practice, I would sit and think for the entire hour. And when they were pleasant thoughts, I'd get up at the end of the hour and think, oh, that was a nice sitting. (laughs) It took a lot of perseverance, a lot of patience, to work with this wandering mind, and to slowly develop a certain power or steadiness ability to concentrate. I know that it's possible to do this since I started without any concentration, and so I know that no matter where we're starting from, given the right kind of practice and enough perseverance, it actually can develop. The question is, how do we develop it? How do we go about strengthening this particular power of mind? <clears throat> the way we do it in meditation is to give the mind a primary object of attention. It can be the breath, the nose, it can be the rising, falling. It can be the walking meditation. We give it a primary object, and over and over again come back to it. The mind wanders, we come back. We begin again a thousand times. As we come back, it's not simply coming back with a vague hope that the mind will land on the object. We actually want to come back more actively engaged in the process. And this active engagement has to do with the quality of aiming the attention and sustaining the attention. It's very simple. What's difficult is to remember to do it. The actual doing of it is not hard. We have this capacity. We aim the mind, we sustain the attention but to remember to do it with each breath or with each step that's what our training is. Through practice, through the repetition of this exercise something quite miraculous begins to happen. The mind actually does begin to become steadier to land more completely on the object to become more one-pointed. then something happens, we begin to get a little steadier, begin to get a little more concentrated, a little less distracted and through the power of this non-distractedness we start to feel all kinds of sensations in the body and in the beginning most of them are unpleasant there's pain and there's aching and there's tension and there's heat and there's burning and there's stretching and twisting and searing and there's a whole catalog of painful feelings what is very helpful to understand is that the awareness of these painful sensations are actually a sign of progress (laughs) I thought you would be glad to know that (laughs) It's not that all of a sudden these sensations are coming because we're sitting. What's happening is that because our minds are not so distracted, we are feeling what is actually there. Now you go to the movies, no problem you sit for an hour and a half, 2 hours, there's no problem. There's no discomfort. Sit here 10 minutes into the sitting and then uh, uh tight and dizzy and itching and all kinds of things. It's precisely because our minds are getting more concentrated that we feel it. Working with painful feelings is tremendously important in our practice and in our lives. Because these feelings of discomfort that may come up in our sitting are representative of all kinds of unpleasant and difficult situations in our lives. How is it that we relate to them? How is it that we relate to the painful feelings when we sit? Our conditioned habit of relationship is one of dislike. It's one of aversion of fear, of worry, of contraction, pain begins to come, we pull in, we pull back, or we push away. Living in this way, with relation, with respect to the unpleasant feelings, or the unpleasant situations of life, is a very defensive way to live. We're always trying to protect ourselves from these feelings had a very immediate example of this recently. Just before coming here, I was teaching uh, in Colorado, up in the mountains, and it was a very nice retreat for me, because I would teach in the morning and ski in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, skiing, as is almost any discipline, uh, a wonderful reflection of what's going on in the mind. On days that I felt good and the conditions were good, and the sun was out and everything was fine, it was just this beautiful movement down the mountain, when conditions were a little icy, and I wasn't feeling so good, and I was on some steep slopes started getting into what I call defensive skiing, you know, where you're kind of breaking into the mountain, and I could feel the whole body sort of contract out of the fear, you know, of falling down the mountain, (laughs) 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 and just the difference of when everything was going well and there was not that defensiveness, and then there was just this easy movement, easy flow, and then when there was fear because of a certain unpleasant feeling, everything tightened, everything contracted. Really, our life is like that. Are we living defensively because of aversion towards unpleasantness, or is there another way to live? Is there another way to be with this part of life? And it's for exactly this purpose that working with painful sensations in the sitting can be so enlightening, so instructive. It brings us right to the edge of how we are, of how much we can accept, how much we can allow. Now often, theoretically, we have the idea that we'd like to play the edge of things. We have that idea when we're nice and comfortable and safe, yeah, playing the edge would be nice. (laughs) Every sitting we have that opportunity play the edge of the willingness to be with difficult experience, the painful sensations that come up in the body. Can we learn to relate to them, not from a place of aversion, not from a place of fear, but actually softening the mind, relaxing into them, opening to them? Very different relationship, very different experience. A helpful vipassana mantra in dealing with pain, dealing with discomfort, is it's okay. Just instead of the mental label for the moment, you could just say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Sort of that gently dropping in, gently relaxing into the sensation. What is it? What actually is going on? What is the pain? What is the nature of it? This is our chance to explore but we need to do it with that attitude of openness rather than the attitude of defensiveness. Through the development of concentration, we begin to open up to these feelings in the body. We also begin to observe in a more careful and complete way the inner experience of our minds. And mind, in this sense, doesn't mean, or is not limited to our intellects. It doesn't simply mean our thought process. Think of mind as big mind, as the mind heart, as everything that arises in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our feelings, in our images, in all the levels of silence, in our intuition, As our concentration becomes stronger, this whole inner world of the mind begins to show itself. What happens with the mind is analogous to what happens with the body, in that just as in the beginning we mostly come in contact with these unpleasant physical sensations, usually a while before we open to the very pleasant ones that can come, in the same way our first take on the mind, our first looking often reveals some of the difficult mind states, some of the painful mind states. There are a few of them which are quite famous. They're common to most people, and they're extremely, deeply conditioned in us. There are a few of these mind states, these difficult emotions, or difficult states, which have tremendous power in the mind. And just as we have to learn to open to the pain and relate to it in a different way, in the course of our exploration, our inner journey, we come across these mind states. They come up for us and it's essential that we learn how both to recognize them and also how to work with them. In the traditional Buddhist description these states are called hindrances because if we don't understand them, if we don't understand how they're working, they hinder our progress on the path, they hinder the development of concentration. What is the first one. It's the mind state or feeling of desire. We live in a world of sense objects, of sense experience. This is the realm that we live in. We're continually coming into contact with pleasant sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations in the body, pleasant situations, pleasant people, thoughts, feelings. And what happens with our contact with these pleasant objects, conditioned by that pleasantness, the mind reaches out, the mind wants, it desires, it grasps, it clings. All of these are aspects of the addictive mind. It's the quality of addiction in the mind with respect to pleasant experience. This is a strong habit. Something pleasant comes, we like it, we want it, we must have it, and we don't want to lose it. We can see this clearly when we look at our strongest attachments. Now, what are the strongest attachments we have in our lives? For many people, there's a very strong attachment to the body. The pain in your sitting practice notwithstanding. No. There's an attachment to the pleasure of the body. There's a strong attachment we have to other people. attachment to the pleasure we get from being with other people. Attachment to situations, attachment to objects. Come to a retreat like this, there's actually quite a significant level of renunciation. I mean, it really is a giving up of a lot of the ordinary pleasures that we have in our lives. But what's interesting is how the mind finds new things to desire in a much more restricted field. I was wondering today what time the lunch line actually begins. (laughs) Because when I go down it's like... (laughs) and I've noticed myself, you know, I'll be doing the walking meditation just back and forth and back and forth, and I see the difference between how I'm walking when I'm doing the walking meditation and how I walk to lunch. You know, there's just, it's subtle but it's there. It's kind of that that slight toppling forward or anticipation, (laughs) being pulled forward by the thought of lunch, by, by that desire. How often do we look around? What is that? That's a desire. It's a desire for visual pleasure. There was a time I was I was doing intensive practice in India, and I was on the roof of this meditation center. There was just beautiful countryside around, and I'd go one length, very mindfully and carefully, and I'd stop. <laughs> I kinda of gaze around and then oh, I walk another length and at the end I'd gaze around. It was amazing to me how strong that desire was. I had the hardest time not to do that. It's just as if I was pulled into looking about. That is the force of wanting. That's the force of an addicted mind. To get lost in fantasies, that's another kind of desire. A little too much pain in the body, let's go on a little journey. <laughs> you know, How many journeys do we go on in the course of an hour? That's the force of desire, that's the force of wanting, it's the force of craving. Just think how you would feel if you came into the hall and somebody was sitting in your spot. Great trauma. What? Attachment to place. We have this idea that this place belongs to me. Another kind of clinging, another kind of grasping. The desire shades into how we're relating to the practice itself. It comes in the form of expectation. You know, we're sitting and we're watching the breath and there's this feeling, well, when's something going to happen? You know, I've watched the breath for five minutes. Okay. (laughs) What's supposed to happen? And we're expecting or anticipating or wanting something instead of simply being just with the breath. An occupational hazard of old yogis having to do with this craving or wanting, comes in the form of comparing this retreat to other retreats. Now we have a certain model in our minds of what happened before, why isn't that happening again? This force of desire, this force of wanting in the mind, is a hindrance to concentration and a hindrance to wisdom because we become entranced by the object, and we don't see clearly what is actually going on. We don't see what's really there. Sort of like getting lost in this enchanted forest, and we're wandering around in the forest, and we don't know where we are until something happens and we wake up. The force of desire in the mind is like this force of enchantment. When we are caught in this enchantment, we get lost in so many kinds of thoughts and reflections. You're sitting, you're watching the breath. Maybe you start thinking of somebody here. Out of the corner of your eye, you were attracted to somebody. Or the front of your eyes, (laughs) you were attracted to somebody. Can sit and the mind can go on this amazing journey of creation of meeting the person and falling in love and getting married and having children getting divorced. (laughs) It happens so often and so many times. This is the Vipassana romance, right? Where we just get we get carried away by this energy of wanting, the pleasure of it the pleasure that it gives us. Not only does the force of this mind state hinder the deepening of our concentration and our wisdom, it also does not deliver what it promises to deliver to us. Because desire promises us happiness. You fulfill me and you'll be happy. And what's amazing is how often we fall for that. We fall for it again and again, even though we've had countless experience of it not working. We go after different pleasures because of the pleasant feeling that we get. That's what fuels, that's what motivates desire in the mind. It's the desire for pleasantness the desire for some kind of pleasure the problem is that these pleasant feelings don't last and so we may very well enjoy them we may have some moments of pleasure some moments of pleasantness and then they pass and we need to seek again we need to desire again and it is this endless cycle of seeking of finding something of having it disappear or change and again looking at the end of our lives, what do we have? You know, if we live our life in this cycle, what is it that we actually have at the end of our lives? Not much. It's just like sand you know, falling through one's fingers. There's nothing substantial in those experiences precisely because of the ephemeral, ephemeral transitory nature. a way to check this out for ourselves again it's not a question of believing this it's a question of looking and taking enough care to really look and investigate in our own experience what is it that's true think in your lives of how many pleasant experiences you've had of all kinds you know been in beautiful surroundings and with wonderful people and delicious food and wonderful ecstatic sensations in the body, where are they? If they were genuinely fulfilling, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be subjecting yourself to this. (laughs) But we know, we do know deeply that there is something basically incomplete about it. That there is no substance. it said that the hardest disease to cure the one that is the most difficult to cure is that disease which is caused by the medicine because you keep taking the medicine thinking it's curing you and all the time the medicine itself is the cause of the disease that's the situation we're in with this we think that the fulfillment or the gratification of desire is going to cure the thirst of the desire. And so we go for it. But the continual going for or clinging to sense pleasures simply feeds the force of desire. And so we go around in this circle. It's like drinking ocean water to quench one's thirst. What happens? You drink it and we get more thirsty. This is not to suggest that we should not enjoy things. It's not to suggest that we necessarily go off and become ascetics in some cave in the mountains, although it's not a bad idea. But most of us are not about to do that. Really, the meaning for us in this understanding is that we see clearly the essentially empty nature of this cycle, of the desire and the gratification and the enjoyment and the desire again, that in some fundamental way, we know that it is not going to bring completion that it's not going to bring fulfillment, so that we don't base our lives on this illusion. It's not that we don't enjoy things, but it's possible to direct our lives or base our lives on something which is of far greater value and actually brings an incomparably deeper happiness and peace. That's what we have to learn and to see as we explore the nature of the wanting mind. So desire is the first of these hindrances or difficult mind states. The second is aversion, and aversion has lots of nuances, irritation, annoyance, fear, anger, hatred, unworthiness, all of these are aspects of aversion. Just as the mind is attracted to pleasant objects it's conditioned through a long history of feeling aversion towards unpleasant objects. This is very easy to see when we're observing the pain just really watch how the mind relates to it. What's What's the first attitude we have in our mind when pain comes? Very often it's, oh no. And then depending how balanced we are, we either get into the oh no, or we kind of readjust and relax into it. But the immediate reaction is one of pushing away, not liking, not wanting, wanting to get rid of. Pay careful attention to the array of mind-states that arise around painful feeling. So that you really begin to explore and understand all the nuances of aversion. We begin to see frustration. We see disappointment. We see discouragement. We see contraction. Contraction of our minds, contraction of our bodies. the quality of aversion when it's more subtle can often be picked up in the tone of the mental note now watch the tone of how you're noting painful feelings pain 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 <laughs> you know with the gritting of the teeth and that's aversion <laughs> that's not liking it See if it's possible to soften the tone, to soften the attitude, to soften the mind, so that we actually can transform the aversion into acceptance. We have aversion about pain. We have aversion about past situations, past events. How often does it happen that we'll be sitting, minding our own business, thought of somebody comes up, somebody that we've had difficulty with in the past, and just the thought or the image of that person will trigger a whole train of angry, aversive thoughts and feelings. This is a fascinating process to observe because (laughs) we are falling for the oldest trick the mind has, (laughs) which is forgetting that the thought of a person is not the person. It's just a thought. It's just these words coming up in the mind, or it's just a picture in the mind. And yet we forget that. We forget what is really there, what is really happening. We buy into it. We buy into the story Forgetting that it is an empty thought, we think that it's the person because we're living in this enchantment, and that thought or that image triggers or can trigger very strong emotions. What is going on? How is this happening? This is very much the story of our lives. If we can see it with clarity in this kind of situation, it offers the possibility of not being enchanted, not getting caught in the greater busyness of our lives. We also get into a version about situations on the retreat. Vipassana vendettas. You know, somebody here bugs you. You just... You don't like the way they walk, and you don't like the way they look, and they're too noisy, and... One time at the meditation center in Burma, there was a fan war. It was really hot. Burma is really, really hot, and humid, and uncomfortable. And there's this small meditation room, and there were fans. Some of the people liked the fans on and some of the people light the fans off. (laughs) In one situation it actually came to
2: blows.
1: (laughs) Just the power of aversion in the mind can become so strong. The three-month retreat is wonderful for this. It provides endless opportunities to watch the force of aversion arise in the mind. You know, when a hundred people are living in close quarters together for three months it's great. <laughs> <laughs> we also have aversion towards how the practice is going. Right? It's not only to painful feelings or past memories or situations. We begin to have all kinds of aversion toward the practice itself or our model about the practice. If difficulties are arising, or if painful things are arising, what happens? We don't like it. We get discouraged. Or we get upset, or we get angry. The mind starts complaining. Just the complaint i am really familiar with that one. You know, the conditions in Burma were so difficult. Not only with the heat, but there was tremendous noise, and. As is common in, in many Asian cultures, there seems to be a penchant for loudspeaker systems.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, and there were lots of villages around the monastery, and there were these loudspeakers all over the place, and they would just play this loud music all day and all night. <laughs> it seemed very unfair.
2: <laughs>
1: and I could just watch my mind getting into this complaining mode you know, of how terrible it was. And didn't they know I was trying to meditate? <laughs> I had to remind myself that this was their country and I actually came to visit. If we don't recognize this aversion as it comes up in the mind in its many forms and many arenas, what happens is that it becomes tremendously disturbing it becomes impossible to concentrate the mind when aversion is strong. Without concentration we can't develop wisdom. So we have to learn about it. It's a powerful force. It's, it's deeply rooted. So it's to take the opportunities when it arises, not to get discouraged or not to get lost in it, but actually to use it as a time to understand. Okay, what is this mind state about? What is anger about? How is it happening? How am I getting caught in it? There's desire, there's aversion. The third of these hindrances is one which is very common, especially at the beginning of a retreat, and that is sloth and torpor. And it is just like it sounds. You know, It's this heaviness and dullness and sleepiness and drowsiness of mind. What's happening with sloth and torpor is that the fiery quality of energy is not there. There's no fire happening. And so there's just this sinking in, sinking down. The particular characteristic of sloth and torpor which makes it a powerful hindrance is that it does not allow the other wholesome factors to operate. When sloth and torpor are there, we don't have the space in the mind for these skillful qualities of concentration, of mindfulness, of energy. It's like being confined in a very small room, in a tight space. The image that I like the best of sloth and torpor actually is of the three-toed sloth. And I was reading about it in a natural history book. There's a wonderful description of this three-toed sloth hanging uh, from a tree. I think it hangs by its tail. And it's so slothful that it said you could shoot a gun right next to its head and it wouldn't even turn. (laughs) And it said every long time I forget how long it was every once in a while it would kind of make its way down the tree get a little bit to eat maybe if there was a sloth of the opposite sex they'd mate and back up the tree (laughs) (laughs)
2: so
1: next time you feel under the influence just see if you can picture this, this Three-toed sloth, and uh, it might inspire you. (laughs) There's desire, there's aversion, there's sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances is restlessness. Restlessness, agitation, worry. And this also prevents prevents the strengthening of concentration of mind. When restlessness is there, we're not one-pointed. It can happen from various reasons. Sometimes it happens because of an imbalance of energy and concentration. Sometimes our energy is very high, but the concentration is weak. And so our system can't contain the amount of energy that's happening. When that imbalance is present, that manifests as restlessness. That agitation, that agitated quality too much energy, not enough concentration. It can also happen from worrying about things. As we get into a worry mode, and this creates a lot of restlessness in the mind. There's a phenomenon, a yogi phenomena, which happens very commonly. It's a kind of disease it's called Yogi Mind, and it happens a lot on long retreats, but I'm sure you've had little tastes of it. I'll just I'll tell you a few Yogi Mind stories to give you a flavor of this particular kind of restlessness. I was doing a retreat at the center in Barre and I was quite calm and quite concentrated and then I started hearing these noises coming through the radiator pipes and I just go hearing, hearing but as I'm listening I begin to hear voices in the noises and I begin to hear whole conversations and I had this idea that there was this group of people speaking in the kitchen which was quite a way away and somehow their conversation was coming up through the pipes into my room and the conversation was very disturbing that it was of one couple and one person of the couple had murdered the other person and somebody else was dying and they didn't want to tell me because they didn't want to disturb my retreat. And I'm sitting there listening to this conversation, (laughs) totally convinced that this was happening. There was no doubt at all. It was a little disturbing. I had a, I stayed with this for a couple of days. I finally had to go out and just check what is going on here. You know, why isn't anybody telling me anything? <laughs> it was just yogi mind. Another story which I love. There are endless stories of this, but it happened with Steve and Michelle when they were teaching at this place in Australia where we, where we go both to sit and to teach. Uh, the room that Steve was staying in was next to a walking room uh, where the yogis would walk and where there were outside doors coming into the walking room. And there was a door from Steve's room out into that walking room. And there was also another door on the other side of the room going outside. It was about 10 o'clock at night and Michelle came into Steve's room to talk about something and she came in by a door, she, one of the doors she didn't usually use. And so Steve said to her, why did you come in that door? Just at that time, a yogi was coming from the outside into the walking room. And he heard Steve's voice say, why did you come into that door? (laughs) At 4 o'clock in the morning, this yogi came into Steve's room. Why did you ask me? why I came in that door (laughs) and he had been up all night. (laughs) If you have such problems, please wait till breakfast. (laughs) This is the quality of restlessness, you know, where the mind just latches on to something and starts working it and can't let go. The last of the hindrances is doubt. And it's extremely important to learn how to recognize doubt and how to work with it. Because if we don't see it, doubt has the power to actually stop us cold in the practice. We just stop doing it. And doubts take many forms. You know, it's the feeling of, can I do this? It's too hard. I can't do it. It's a great practice, but it's for other people. Or, it's a terrible practice, and I hate it, and I want to get out of here.
2: You know.
1: It's not the right time. It's right. Oh, good, and I know it's good for me but this isn't the right time for me, and I'll come back next year. Doubt works to exhaust us. It's an exhausting quality because it engages us in this endless speculation. We just start thinking and thinking and thinking, and it doesn't go anyplace. And so we have to see all the, all the nuances of doubt when it arises, so that we can label it and see it. It doesn't mean that we just have blind faith in everything. It means that we recognize this undermining kind of doubt, the doubt that's actually stopping us from investigating for ourselves. Because in the moment of clear investigation, in the moment of clear contact with our experience, in that moment there's no doubt. When you're just with a breath, and you're just there, and you're feeling it, there's no doubt. There's no confusion. It's when we get lost in our thinking process. So what to do with all of these? There's desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and doubt. Tomorrow morning we'll go into more detail of how to work with each one of these states. The underlying principle is that we make them an object of meditation they're going to come. They're strong forces in the mind. If we can recognize them, if we can see them just as they arise, turn our attention towards them, note them, and watching the quality, the tone of of voice of the note, so it's not judgmental, it's not pushing away, we note it, we look at it, we investigate it, we understand its nature, we don't get caught by it. And one of the great things that we see is that these hindrances are not intrinsic to the mind. They're visitors to the mind. But because we haven't paid attention to them, they visitors who've made themselves at home. <laughs> you now, just one little last story. A friend of ours who was on retreat is from Los Angeles, and he lives in this Quite big house and there's a kind of automatic gate on it. Uh, he lives with his uh, family. One day he was home alone, and somebody buzzes, and he opens, you know, the gate. And this man walks in. And our friend could tell right away there was sort of a crazed look in this guy's eye, you know. And so our friend asked you know, well, what do you want? And this guy said, well, I live here. And our friend said, just for a moment. He said, oh, does he live here?
2: <laughs>
1: That's what we have done with the hindrances. You know, they come to visit, they announce that they live here. Oh, well, yeah, maybe they do live here. <laughs> you know, and we invite them in it's not helpful. We're not recognizing them for what they are and we're not appreciating the undermining power that these mind states have. It doesn't mean that we hate them. It doesn't mean that we condemn or we get caught up in judgment. It means that we have to learn how to deal with them in a skillful way. And at the basis of that is bringing mindfulness to bear so that we see them, we recognize them, we note them, we don't get caught, we don't get identified with them. We begin with this purification of action. We really integrate that understanding in our lives. It is the foundation. It's absolutely necessary that we pay attention to our actions. Out of the purification of action, comes this purification of mind, the deepening power of concentration. Through that we begin to open to the body and the whole range of feelings in the body, the painful ones, the pleasant ones. We begin to open up to all the inner workings of the mind, at first with the very obvious states and then the very subtle states. Through this purity of mind, this concentration of mind, we actually enter the gateway to wisdom, the gateway to understanding the Dharma in a deeper and more profound way. So this is what our path is about. This is what we're doing in the practice. Sit for a few minutes.